Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1, um, and I really encourage you to bring a Bible. I remember in college, um, actually maybe in high school, wanting to bring a Bible to church, but thinking, what would my friends think? What are my friends going to say? Like really worried about that, like if I brought this Bible, and now as a 47-year-old adult, I'm like, no, I want to bring my Bible because I want to interact with God's Word, because I believe God wants to speak to me and to us through uh, the Word. And so if you have a Bible, I I loved, like I had a Kindle for a while, but I had to throw that thing away because I just didn't like interacting with the screen. I'm like, I have to interact with the book. And so if you like interacting that way with a book, uh, bring a Bible. If you liked interacting with the screen, do it on your phone. That's why we've set it up that way, so you can have Scripture in front of you and interact with it in the way that, that you uh, interact with it best. And uh, over the, the next couple months, um, we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're starting in Mark chapter 1. And so if you want to look at, uh, turn to Mark chapter 1, we're going to be at verse 16. And Mark uh, is writing the, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is not one of the original 12 disciples. He's not uh, one of Jesus's 12, but he was in that community that was uh, around the twelve. Mark was a close companion of Peter, and actually Mark is, is, is him writing down everything that Peter said to him about what happened, uh, uh, what happened with Jesus, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught. Um, but Mark was also around the Christian community. We see in Acts tra- chapter 12 that Mark's mom uh, had a lot of uh, Christians at her house to pray together. And so they were, he was a part of this, this Christian community, and he breaks up the gospel of Mark into two sections. The first eight chapters is uh, over the span of three years. It takes place in the northern region amongst the poor, and it's a lot of Jesus's miracles, and it's fast-paced, and, and a lot of like really kingdom things happen, Mir- miracles happen, uh, really fascinating stories. And so Mark chapter 1 through 8 takes place over the course of three years, and so we're going to navigate through that, and then it switches in Mark 8 to uh, 9 through 16, focusing on Jesus going to Jerusalem and going to the cross. And so I envision the the rest of this year being in those first uh, eight chapters of Mark um, and going through those nice and nice and slowly and so the Gospel of Mark starts off and, and Jesus busts onto the scene in verse fifteen and the first words that we hear Jesus say in Mark chapter one he says this the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel Jesus comes and he says repent and believe in the gospel. This, this repent word means to, to turn and go a different direction, to turn away from something and to go a different direction. And he says, repent and believe in the gospel. And I love this word gospel. I mean, we've used this word for, for many years, and this was a word that didn't originate in the church. It was actually in the culture. It was a word that they used on a regular basis, and this is what it meant. It, meant it was news that brings great joy. It was used in that day, and it meant uh, history-making, life-shaping news, as opposed to just daily news that you see on a regular basis. Daily news like Michigan State lost again. You know, like that. that, Like, that's just (laughs) daily news. That's not breaking news. That's just, like, regular news, you know. But but this is talking about breaking news. And, And sadly, you know what's funny about, like, our culture that we live in today? I feel like everything they try to get across is, like, breaking news. And they're like, oh, this is big breaking news. And it really isn't at the end of the day. It's like, oh, that was, that was it? Just another loss or, or whatever? Um, but the gospel is, is life-changing news. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, Jesus the King. 
He says this, gospel was news of some event that changed things in a meaningful way. Gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that has been done for you that changes your status forever. He goes on to say, gospel isn't good advice. It's life-changing, life-altering. I want you to think about that. It's life-changing, life-altering. God breaking in to history, coming towards us in his son Jesus to reconcile us back to the Father in relationship to the Father, not based on what we've done, but based on what Jesus has done. I mean, that is the gospel. That is life-changing. It's not just a little advice on how to fix up your life. It is life-changing. And this morning, I wonder, do we believe that the gospel is life-changing? Do we believe that the gospel really is good news? Do we, do we sit down and be like, oh, this is life-altering. I have my status before Almighty God, if I believe in Jesus, has been changed forever. Is the gospel still good news to us? Does it still change our life on a daily basis? Does it still transform us every single day to say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done? I'm a new creation. Or has it been become just another little bit of news, something that we just add to our life. I want to chat this morning and look at what happened to the early disciples, and I want to talk about how like, the gospel needs to, needs to be life-changing to us, it needs to transform us from the inside out, how the gospel can be so freeing in our lives. I know um, one of the biggest lies that I've ever believed. And I've even said it as a little kid. And, and, and this statement is so far from the truth. It's a lie that's up, up on the screen. And maybe you said this as a little kid. I said this as a little kid to people who would say things about me, who would say things to me. And it was this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I remember hearing something about my, myself and uh, kids saying things to me, even as a little kid, and I would say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is so far from the truth. Words hurt. Because as a 47-year-old adult standing up here today, I can remember when I was in middle school, and I can remember growing wide before I grew tall. And because I looked different, I walked different, I ran different than others, people said things. And I can still remember the kids who said it. I still remember the words that teachers said to me, that I wasn't smart enough, that I wasn't skilled in, in writing or speaking. I remember teachers who told me that I wasn't going to amount to much. Also, I remember growing up in a, in a small Dutch community and not having the, the last name of the big family being excluded and people saying things. I remember getting older and going to college and, and people saying things. I remember my parents saying things to me. And I love my parents. And my parents are, are wonderful people. But I was raised in this culture of performance where I would come home and I would uh, show them my grades. And I'd be like, hey, I got a B. I'm like, I'm, I think this is pretty good. I got a B. I didn't fail. I got a B. Like, this isn't bad. And they're like, why wasn't it a B plus? Why wasn't it an A minus? Those are words that I still remember today. Words hurt. Things that people say hurt. 
And then frankly, if I'm 100% honest, I step into working in the church. And the words don't stop, but they continue and they increase. I remember when I first started in ministry and, and somebody having a problem with me. And they said, Dave, you're not deep enough. Those words cut to the core of who I am. I'm like, I'm only 23. I'm not supposed to be super deep. Come on, I'm still learning. But then it would continue. I remember getting an email, an anonymous email, and shouldn't have read it, but I read it. And it was like, I don't understand you. Are you spirit-filled? Are you not spirit-filled? Are you biblical? Are you not biblical? Like, what camp are you in? And, and people, for a number of years, saying, Dave, you're, you're too spirit-led, or you're not spirit-led enough. You're too biblical, or you're not biblical enough. And, and would say things, and these words hurt. And I say that to you today. Because I want you to feel, I want you to remember the words that were said to you. Because words can, can shape our lives, and words hurt. But here's the thing. People have said things about me and said things to me, but it's nothing compared to the thoughts that I've had and the words that I've said to myself. Because I go through life, and I miss opportunities, and I beat myself up. Or I think of being a parent or a, or a husband, and I, I'm like, ah, oh, I failed in this way or that way. And there's this running record in my mind and maybe in your mind of things that you could have done better, you should have done better, you wish you would have done better. Now, just a little side note, I'm totally fine. I'm not having a therapy session up here. I share that because I have experienced so much freedom in what I want to share today. And people sometimes will say, I think he's up there preaching to himself. Yep, I preach to myself every Sunday, and I preach to you as well every Sunday. And so I want to dive into the Word and just see, like, we are living in this performance culture, a performance culture where it's all about what have you done for me lately, or, or to try harder and to do more, and the gospel comes crashing in. And the most important thing for us as followers of Jesus is not our performance, but our position. Are we in Christ or are we not in Christ? And if we are in Christ, everything changes. Look at verse 16 of Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to read three different sections of Jesus coming to the first disciples. And there are things that we're going to learn uh, from that. It says this in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And then turn over to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose, and he followed him. And then lastly, Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. He went up on the mountainside and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. 
Looking at these three stories, Jesus picking his disciples, let me ask you a question, and this is not a trick question. Who makes the first move? In this situation, who makes the first move? Jesus. We see it over and over again. Jesus sees the disciples, sees them fishing, sees Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, sitting in the booth. Jesus is praying for his disciples before. He sees them, and then he speaks. He he says something to them. He says, follow me. This was unheard of in the first century because they, like us, lived in a culture of performance where you would constantly strive and try harder to impress people who were teachers or who were rabbis. Their culture was a culture based on performance, and and, uh, this is the world that Jesus stepped into. And so if you were a kid, if you were a family who had kids, at about age five or six, you would enter into this system of performance with good intentions, with a good desire. You wanted your kid, your children, to understand the words of God so that they wouldn't be um, tempted to go to the left or to the right so that they wouldn't be swayed by the the ways of the world. And so at five or six years old, you would send little Johnny or uh, little Barry off to uh, school. You would take a nice little picture, and they would say, hey, here's my first day of school, and they would go to the synagogue and learn the law. And the first day, the the teacher would use a really visible sign. They would take honey and, and pour it all over the student's desk or all over the slate that they were writing on, and they would compare what they were going to teach to honey, which was the most delicious thing anybody could eat. And they would say, may the words of God be like honey on your lips. And so they would want to teach these young little kids uh, that God's word is to be treasured, is to be held onto, is to be lived out because this is the way to have life. And so from the age of, of six all the way up to 10, little kids would work on memorizing the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible, all by memory. And by the time they were age 10, they would have the first five books of the Bible memorized. Isn't that amazing? Like that they have that ability to do that at age 10, to have everything up here, to have it memorized. I look at kids today, like 10, 11 years old, like there's no way they could do that. But then they go spout off uh, lyrics from songs or movies or things like that. I'm like, oh, maybe we just have them think about other things instead of the things that really matter. They have the capability. Maybe they're just a little distracted. But at the age of 10 or 11, After finishing that school, they would go to the next school, and this would be the middle school age from about ages 10 to 14. These kids would go to school, and they would learn the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament. They would put the the Psalms and the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament to memory. And so by the time at age 14, many would have the whole Old Testament memorized, which actually still happens today. Memorize the entire Old Testament and be able to quote it. But they would also learn in middle school, they would also learn how to interact with what they were learning. See, we live in a culture where uh, you go to school, you learn the information, and then at the right time, at the test time, you give the information back. It's a very Western way of, of thinking and learning. But in the East, they would learn differently. Instead of learning the information, they would ask questions and they would give questions and answers. And so a student would learn how to ask questions and how to respond by asking more questions. And so if a teacher would say, what is 2 plus 2? They would not say, what is 4? They would say, what is 16 divided by 4? And it was this back and forth. 
And in fact, Jesus was at age 12 when he went to the temple, when his parents lost him, when he was in the temple. And what did they say about Jesus? They were amazed by his questions and answers. So after you went through middle school, memorize the entire Old Testament, learn how to answer a question with another question, you would go on to high school. And the number one thing that people wanted to do back in the first century, it wasn't if you came to them and you said, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? What is the best job that you could have? It wouldn't be, I want to be a professional baseball player or football player or anything like that. They would say, I would want to be a teacher. I want to be a teacher. That was the pinnacle. And so you worked hard, you strived, you worked hard to get the attention of a teacher. You would pick a teacher, you would follow them, go really close to them, doing exactly what they did, copying their every move, hopefully with the hope that you could get their attention and they would say, okay, you just follow me and I will make you a teacher. And they would invite you into a relationship where they would teach you the law. But all the way through school, All the way through school, in this culture of performance, you would be learning your father's trade. You would learn the family business. And so if your father was a carpenter, you would learn carpentry. If your father was um, uh, whatever, a fisherman, you would learn how to fish. Because there is a time where if you were not smart enough, if you were not good enough, if you didn't make the next cut, you wouldn't go on from elementary school to middle school. There was no, no child left behind. There were children that were left behind. If you didn't make the cut, they would look at you and they would say, you know what? You're not smart enough. You're really not good enough. Why don't you go home and learn the family business and work there, have kids, and maybe your son will be smarter and can eventually become a teacher. This was the culture. This is the culture that they lived in. And so what were the disciples doing when Jesus came to them? They were fishing. They knew rejection. And Jesus came to them. He moved towards them. He moved towards them and he said, what? Follow me. Which is absolutely profound. Because it wasn't, hey, follow me so you can learn the law. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to teach you religion. Jesus was inviting into a relationship. He moved towards them. He invited them into the relationship, those who knew rejection. And it says immediately they dropped their nets and followed him. They were standing there. I brought Zane's fishing pole. They were standing there with their pole, which I believe represented so much. They were fishing, and sure, they would not have had a pole like this, you know, $29.99 from Walmart, They would have had nets, and they were casting their nets into the sea. And they were holding their pole, which was a symbol of rejection, a symbol of their status, a symbol of of maybe areas where they felt that they uh, didn't, didn't measure up, where they didn't perform adequately enough to be selected to go on to the next school. And Jesus comes and he says, drop your pole, drop your nets, and follow me. I see you. I think Jesus is inviting us today. Jesus is constantly inviting us into relationship. And the thing that I feel that we need to respond to today is with this, that we need to drop our poles. I mean, there's so many things that we cling on to. And really, this is at the core of Christianity, the very foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So you think about it, these guys were fishermen, and Jesus comes to them, and he says, drop your nets, follow me. 
They exchanged their life. What happened on that day when they moved from being fishermen to followers of Jesus, when they went from being rejected by their culture to being in relationship with Jesus? Their identity changed. In an instant, their identity was transformed. As they dropped their pole, they dropped their nets, and they followed Jesus. And this is at the very core of what Christianity is. It is the great exchange. It's giving up our old life and accepting Jesus' new life. Taking our unrighteousness and throwing that away and accepting Jesus' righteousness through his blood. But we have to drop our poles. Because too often, what I think we do is we try to hold on to our poles and we add Jesus to our life. See, Jesus, he invites and he says, come and follow me. He invites into relationship. But in order to respond, it's not about just giving Jesus anything in our life. It's not just like, okay, hey, here's a part of my life. No, Jesus demands everything because he's worth it. He comes and he invites relationship and these guys see this. And so they leave everything behind and follow Jesus. And I wonder today, have you dropped everything to follow Jesus? Or are you here today trying to hold on to the things of this world and all the the desires and the lusts and all the things that this world offers? Are we trying to hold on to that and follow Jesus at the same time? Because it doesn't work. The only way to find freedom is to accept that relationship that Jesus invites us into, to drop our poles and to follow him. And I think in this picture, in this passage, we see clearly what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. It's, cut, it's total surrender to him. He invites us into that relationship where we become fishers of men, so there's mission, there's purpose, but it's not about just improving our lives. The gospel is not about self-improvement, but it's surrender completely to Jesus. And as we do so, we find life. The way in is to drop your pole. But I want to encourage us today, a second thing, don't pick up your pole. See, there is a temptation. There's a spiritual battle, frankly, where the enemy wants us to pick up our pole on a regular basis. The enemy wants us to grab what we used to find our identity in, whether it's failures or faults or whether it's achievements and accomplishments, things that we that did really well. He wants us to grab our pole and say, hey, see, this is my identity. This is what I'm finding life in. And we pick this up, and we think, we, we think about the things that the enemy would want us to believe, and we become paralyzed, if you will, when it comes to following Jesus. We get defeated. We get down. And I think that the enemy, he says, he wants us to pick up our pole. But I would say to us today, don't pick up what, t- what Jesus told us to drop. Don't pick up what Jesus told us to put down. This and what this represents is not our identity. See, the enemy wants you and I to think about our past, to focus on our past, to be so fixed there. The things that I shared with you, he wants you and I to be so focused on that, that you know what, Dave, you're never going to amount to much. You can't, you're not smart enough. You're not good enough. All of those things. He wants me to think about that. He wants me to get focused on my past. But the way to get past that is frankly to remind the enemy, remind the enemy of his past, that he's defeated, that he's been thrown down. And sure, he wreaks havoc in this world from time to time and in our lives, and we feel it and we experience, but we have to remind him that he's defeated, that he's working and operating from a place of defeat, not a place of victory. I love the passage in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, I believe it is, where it says, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those he wants to devour. I want you to think about a cat. Think about a lion. How do they 
operate? How do they stalk their prey? How do they move towards their prey? Do they do so with like a loud voice, with a loud roar? No, they're, they're, they're slow, they're, they're, they're quiet, they're stealth-like. A roaring lion is a lion that has been injured, that has been hurt. And it roars, it, it, it opens up its mouth so it scares its opponent, scares people that might be coming after it. It scares them away with its big might. A roaring lion is not the threat that it appears to be. Because frankly, a roaring lion pales in comparison, pales in comparison to who and what Jesus has done. See, I think we often, we get so paralyzed and we get thrown back in our past, we pick up our poles. You know what? This doesn't define us. The cross and what Jesus did defines us. And we have to be strong in there. Mark 3, and the reason I wanted to read Mark 3 is because what does it say? It says, Jesus picked those he desired. I want you to underline that. Think about that. The God of the universe desires you, desires to be in relationship with you, wants you. But what's the purpose of that? We think, oh, he wants to use me in this world, and I, I need to do all this stuff. And you know what? Well, eventually we'll talk about that. But what's the first thing that it says in Mark chapter 3? Why did he desire you? Why did he pick you? To be with you. He wants us to be with him. And the way to get strength on a daily basis is not to hurry up and go out and do a bunch of things. It's to simply sit and be with Jesus and be reminded that you are loved, that you are accepted, that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, that you have been given an inheritance, that God has poured on you blessing after blessing after blessing, to sit there and just to receive and remember all that we have been given in Jesus. That's how we get strength to fight a day. That's how we get strength to move on is to sit and be with the one who desires us and says, oh, that, that is what you've done for me. I'm not what the people have said. I am who you say I am. Then the last thing that we need to do is encourage each other not to pick up our poles. Because I want you to look in Mark chapter 3. It says, here were the people that Jesus picked to be his disciples. This was a crazy group of people. This was a crazy community. I mean, we see that he selected fishermen, but he also selected a tax collector. Instantly, those two would have been opposed to one another. And they would have been fighting with each other. And I think that often happens in the church. We look at each other, and we're in this community, and sure, we might be a bunch of unschooled, ordinary people, people with backgrounds, but the thing that, has, that brings us together, the thing that we have in common, is actually the person that we have in common, and that's Jesus. And I think too often in the church, we can be critical of each other. We can look at each other's lives and be like, oh, they're not sharing the gospel that way, the, the way that you should. Or they're not praying the way that, that you know, I think they should pray. We can be critical of each other. We can compete with one another. We can look at each other and be like, ah, oh, you know, I, I'm doing the better than that person or this person. We can get into conflict with one another. But the thing that the church needs to be about is telling people over and over again, don't pick up your pole. And we do that by reminding people of their identity in Jesus. A couple weeks ago, at the men's Bible study, we sat in a circle and we just called out what we saw in one another. 
We called out gifting. We called out um, just the, the ways that we've seen the kingdom of God work in one another's lives. And that was so freeing. And I walked away from that night just thinking, why don't we do that on a regular basis? Why don't we do that with one another on a regular basis? We need to be a place as a church where we look at each other and we say, you're gifted in this. I see this gift in you. I see this value in you. Keep going. Keep pressing in. But too often we, we compete and we compare our lives to one another and we criticize one another instead of spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. And so I think Jesus is speaking to us today, and he says this. He says, we need to drop our poles. There have things that you have carried for so long. There are things that you have that weighed you down. And he's like, I don't want you to carry this anymore. Drop it. Receive the free gift of salvation that I purchased for you. But we also need to drop our poles and say, you know what? What happened in the past isn't who I am today. I am defined by my position in Christ. And because I am in Christ, I am a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And this is what we have to speak to one another. This is your identity. Jesus is your identity, not the pole, not whatever you are carrying. And so I believe that this morning, as I was praying for you guys this week, I do believe that there are things that, that you've never shared with people. There are weights that you carry. There are things that you have done that you are allowing to define yourself today. There are things that have been done, for you, done to you that you are still allowing to define you today. And I would say this, the cross of, the cross of Christ is big enough not just to do away with it, but to demolish it. And I believe Jesus wants to bring freedom to people's lives today. And so here's what we're going to do. I would love Tyler and the team uh, to get up and, and they're going to lead us. We're going to go into a time of worship. But the first song that we're going to sing is um, I Need You, right? Isn't that what it is? Lord, I Need You. And I love a line in this song. And it says, righteousness is Christ in me. But even as we're singing this song, I think the, the chorus is a beautiful prayer of just, Jesus, I need you. I need you to lift this load. I need you to lift this thing that I've been carrying. And so I'm going to ask you to, to respond however you want to respond uh, to this song. If you want to stand and sing, that's great. If you want to sit and reflect, that is great. But I also believe that there's some that just need prayer this morning. That you, you want to just be like, hey, pray for me because I have carried this for so long. I have allowed this to identify me. And I've never shared that. And I just want the Lord to move in a powerful way. And if that's you uh, today, if you're here and you're being defined by something that somebody has said to you or something that somebody has done to you, and if you're bold enough, I'm not going to ask you to come forward for prayer or even in the back for prayer. I'm just going to ask you to like just slip up a hand. And here's where I'm going to challenge the rest of us. If you see someone slipping up a hand, like go to them and pray for them. As we're singing that song, if you just, this song, if you just want prayer, just I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand and allow people to pray for you. And then we're going to go uh, into the, the next couple songs. But I want to pray, and then we'll transition to a time of worship and prayer. Jesus, I can't imagine being those disciples 
you walked up to them. You moved towards them. Can't, can't imagine what they were thinking in the moment and, um, and the feelings that were going on inside of them. And then the freedom that came. But Jesus, you do that to us. You're moving to us. You move towards us. You have moved towards us. Going all the way to the cross. And Jesus, I thank you that you came to proclaim freedom to the captives. Sight to the blind. I thank you that that is a picture of the kingdom at hand. The kingdom that is here. That you long to to bring freedom to people who've been carrying so much weight for so many years. To lift up the head of those who are sorrowing. To fill those who are filled with worry and anxiety with peace. Jesus, I thank you that you're for us, not against us. That you came to give us life and give it abundantly. And I know that the thief steals and kills and destroys. And so I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that in this place that you would be bringing freedom. That you would free all of us up that we would drop our poles, that we would drop whatever weight we're carrying and surrender to you completely, King Jesus. Jesus, I pray, and we all pray, the words that we're going to sing here shortly, that we need you, that we're desperately, desperately, desperately in need of you. And so would you move here? Would you bring freedom? In Jesus' name.